Praise the Lord, huh? Isn't the Lord Jesus wonderful? Hallelujah. (laughs) You excited to be at church? Oh, yeah. It's good to be in the house of God. David said that he'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in tents of wickedness. It's not tents anymore. It'd be like Airbnbs of wickedness, but, um, you know, whatever. But we should always be here. It's important. All right, I'm going to talk to you this morning. Um, I'm going to piggyback a bit on what Eric just talked about, uh, about the communion with the Lord, but I'm just going to talk about the subject of love. And I'm going to come at this from many different angles. And uh, in the the time that I have, I want to expound by the grace of God on what love is um, through the life of Jesus and then also through our community and how we are toward one another. Because, you know, you understand that that love is a concept in this day and age that is being greatly challenged. And it even creeps into the house of God sometimes. We think love means we never speak the truth. Love means we tolerate and accept everybody. You uh, read with me yesterday, Leviticus 19.33, that we are supposed to treat a, a person who comes into our midst as if they were already born as part of Israel. We're supposed to love them with this kind of attitude where they belong before they believe. But at the same time, there's standards of the love of God. And, uh, and there's depths of the love of God. And we may not like this language, but Jesus actually approached Peter and he asked him a question that is very challenging to me. Because in principle, the Lord shows no personal favoritism to people. But yet Israel, he separated as his own among the whole world. And... Jesus kind of follows that thought and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? It's a tough question because what it proposes to me is that I can love Jesus more than others. And and I don't like that in Christianity. I, I like more, we all get treated the same. We're a bit more like a democracy with God. Everybody has the same stuff and everybody has the same weighted opinion, but it's just true of the Lord that, that he wants to pour secrets into those who really seek him. He wants to be treasured by us. He loves, not that he's insecure, he doesn't need it, but he, his heart just longs to share with a friend. And we talked a little bit about today the, the communion table. You know, this woman painted this beautiful picture as Eric was, she finished it in the worship, and then Eric began to expand on it through communion. But you know, Communion with 12 disciples, Jesus was simply fulfilling a prophecy that was God's idea of having 12 tribes camped around his presence. And in the very ark, the Holy of Holies, right before the high priest would enter the ark of the Holy of Holies, on the right-hand side, there was a wooden table. In fact, many people believe the table was made out of the same wood that Jesus had the crown of thorns pierce his brow with. But this wooden table was right in front of the very ark. And on that table, there was 12 pieces of bread in Leviticus. You can see it also in Exodus. 12 pieces of bread and wine. Also, there was frankincense there. There's a reason for that too. But right before the presence of God, the very first thing that you would see if you came out of the glory of the Lord would be a table. This signified to us that God always wanted, the beginning of God's nature is I want family and fellowship. It's the first thing he thought of. He didn't have some other article there as the very first thing that came out of his heart. He had a table with 12 pieces of bread 
representing each tribe of the children of Israel. Then Jesus comes, he breaks the bread and hands it to his 12, which is the fulfillment that he is God. But the Lord wants that intimate union with us and there's ways he demonstrates that in the scripture and then there's ways we live in community with one another that demonstrate we understand that love and the depths of that love. And it's wonders. I love that song, oh, the wonders of his love we sing at Christmas. I love that so deeply because his love is really wonderful. It's really, it strikes me, it, it challenges me and it also draws me to a place where I understand I can give him more. I can have power of my will to love him more and turn my affection to him. It's honestly my favorite thing, like this morning as we were worshiping and taking communion, when, when I love that you said, just stop for a minute. Let's just stop because we get to turn our affection toward God and learn how to lean our heart toward him. And the more we do that, our heart becomes squishy, you know? And which means it's easier for the Lord to yield. It's easier for the Lord to mold. But he actually still asks us similar questions to the one he asked Peter. And he asked Peter, do you love me more than these? So I want us to look at a few texts and, um, and the Bible preaches better than I ever could. So I want us to talk about how the Lord sees love. And this, I want to hit it from many angles, the angle of personal love for the Lord, the angle of his love for us. And then I want to talk about our love for each other because our love should be without hypocrisy, as Peter said. All right, let's look at, um, let's go to Luke, if we can, the book of Luke, uh, chapter seven, please. Thank you, great Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. How many of you want to be flooded with the love of God? Oh, that guy, he sneezed when I said that. Hallelujah. Perfect. He really wants it. <laughs> Verse 36, Luke 7, 36. I read out of the New King James Version here. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. This is Jesus. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. This is very important because you see that Jesus is willing to commune around a table with people that other people don't think you should. He's willing to be with people that are religious, judgmental. Sometimes we think when we see a religious Christian, they're religious and we call them, we slap a label on them quickly, Pharisee. You gotta be careful with that because God can turn a Pharisaical heart into an extreme lover. Saul and Paul, two different people. One man, two different people. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. When we have a religious person in our midst who's zealous or a little bit overly you know, strict, sometimes we can be like, oh, they're Pharisees, you know? Or oh, they're Jezebel. Like we, we slap labels on people that you have to be careful. I had a friend of, of mine in Sydney, Australia. He used to write books and teach sermons. He's an incredible Bible expositor. But what he used to do was he would speak against the Toronto blessing. That was his main, uh, you know, like he loved to, to talk about other things in the Word. But one of his main functions to teach his church was, here is what false miracles are. Here's what false manifestations are. And he would go against it. He'd say, I don't believe in healing. It's not for today. He'd, he'd logically, biblically teach it. And, and he'd convince his congregation that God doesn't heal. He can if he wants. It's sovereign, you know. But God doesn't do it as a full-time nature of God. And it doesn't happen through people. It happens more like God just sovereignly can do it. But he was teaching for years against the Toronto blessing, using them as kind of a bullseye example. And then the Lord touched him. And now he's writing books on healing. So, so Jesus was willing to go to a Pharisee's house. You see the same thing with the tax collector Zacchaeus and then you hear the little piping voices of the people. Why are we headed to Zacchaeus' joint? That guy's a tax collector. 
Just important for you to understand this before you see the wonders of his love in this scripture, that he's going to people that other people could have easily judged. Okay, verse 27. Behold a woman in the city who was a sinner when she knew that Jesus was at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster, alabaster flask a fragrant oil. When you see it in the other gospels, it says expensive oil. And she stood at his feet can you imagine this? Behind him. That freaks me out just to begin with. How do you stand at someone's feet behind them? You know what I'm saying? So here you see that obviously Jesus wasn't seated. He was standing up. And she was behind him, but she's standing behind the back of his feet. She didn't even have the courage to come in front of him. How holy, how pure he is. But she's come through the back door she snuck in. Jesus is probably in a circle like this, talking to these Pharisees, Simon and whatnot in the house. He's probably saying a few things. They're probably greeting him. Oh, here's the food we have. He could have just been standing there. And all of a sudden, he feels the presence of this woman behind him. She doesn't come into the midst. She comes very humbly before the, before the Lord. And then she does this. She begins to weep. And then she gets down on her knees and she begins to take those tears flowing from her face. And instead of using her hands to touch his feet, she touches her hair and she covers her hair with these tears and then with the oil and she kisses his feet and anoints them with fragrant oil. Let me just stop there for a second. If you were to kiss a man that you do not know in that culture, not only would you be, you would be in serious trouble under the law, but not only that, you would be seen as probably a, some kind of a, a seductress. You know, some kind of a, you, would be, you, know, you wouldn't be seen better. You wouldn't be seen as someone who's trying to make penance. You'd be seen as somebody who's actually trying to seduce or, or, or breaking uh, social laws and barriers. So she was more than willing to be completely, in terms of in front of people, completely given to God uh, with her love and shamed by men in front of her. She didn't care about their opinion. She just had to get to the feet of the Lord. And then it says this, verse, where am I? Verse 38, she kissed them, anointed her feet, his feet, sorry, with the fragrant oil. And another version says that she broke the alabaster box over him, which I love because when you break, think about this, you have a perfume bottle, Calvin Klein, Chanel, whatever. It has a lid. Those alabaster boxes also have a lid. But she didn't choose to give the lid, take the lid off, put it in her pocket, pour some oil out. She wasted everything. What happens when you break the box? The, that breaking of that box symbolizes this. All my love is for you. Nothing will be left for me to put back together. It's all for you. And she broke it over his feet. And now this fragrance begins to fill the house. And then you see verse 39. The Pharisees who invited him saw this and they spoke he spoke to himself inside saying, this man, if he were a prophet, he'd know what kind of manner this woman is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Now he makes a distinction about who he is. He's never said, I'm not worthy to have you, Jesus, in my house. He's never said, I shouldn't have you around. He's, he's made a distinction between her and between him. She's a sinner and Jesus should know about her sin. Verse 40, Jesus answers and this is so beautiful. He answers his thoughts. That would scare the crap out of me. <laughs> and says, Simon, I have one thing to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. A certain creditor 
had two debtors. One owed him 150 denarii, sorry, 55 denarii, and the other owed him 50. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, which one of them will love him more? Simon, he answered wisely, and he said, I suppose the one who's been forgiven more. He said to him, you've rightly judged. Verse 44, he turns to the woman, he says to Simon, he said, see this woman? Now picture Jesus. Simon's talking. Now he turns and looks at her. And he goes, see this woman? You can picture the face of the Lord. Just looking at her. Simon's here. He was talking to Simon for a second. But now he's turned to the side. And he looks at her and he says, see this woman? When I came into your house, you didn't give me any oil for my feet. But she gave me water for my feet and she's washed my feet with her hair and she's wiped them with the head of her hair and she's dyed my feet with her oil. You know, I'm just reading off the back here. My version says it slightly differently. It says this, my feet, she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet from the time that I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, (laughs) fragrant oil, but she's anointed my head with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins are forgiven, which are many, for she loved much. For those who are forgiven little, they only love a little. In the Jewish culture, when a guest entered your house, you know what you were supposed to do? At the very door of the house, there was always a towel, a basin. When a guest came, an honored guest, you were supposed to wash their feet at the door. You were supposed to show them that the house is, your feet are cleansed. You can come and relax. You can come and sit in our presence. You're our honored guest. You're supposed to also offer them to be wash their face and anoint their face. Do you remember the scripture where Jesus said, don't let people know what you're doing when you fast. He said, wash your face, anoint it with oil, have it covered. But these guys, Simon didn't offer him that. He has the King of glory in his presence, but in front of other people, he refused to wash Jesus' feet just in case his reputation was stained by his love for God. He invited Jesus to his house, but he didn't want Jesus to fully be treated the same way that he would treat an honoured guest. This sinful woman comes and understands her sins are great against God. And so she practices a form of the custom here to love on him, even though he, she didn't know he may have already had his feet covered with oil. She didn't care. She didn't see when he came in. It says she heard that he was at the house, but her love for him was extravagant. Her love for him was different to this man. This man could have washed his feet, but he wouldn't. His reputation was more important than his expression of love. So you have two lovers here. You have one person who's curious, who wants to love Jesus for maybe what he is and what he can give or the status he has, the fame he has. You want him around the table. You want to be able to ask him questions. But then you have this person who is willing to completely abandon what we'd call respectability just in order to touch his feet, to love him, to make him feel like he's a worthy guest in this town. And even though she's the most unworthy person to do it, he turns his face from Simon, he turns his face to the woman, and he says, see what she has done for me. He turned to her after all of this discourse and he says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. He says to her, go your way. Your sins have forgiven you. The amazing thing about a lover like this is when they come to the Lord, And they forget what human reasoning tells you to be, but they just enter into the freedom of deep love. 
They pour their oil, their fragrance on the Lord. They break their box open over the Lord. The house smells like oil. Jesus smells like fragrant oil, but so does the lover who walks away. She looked foolish to this Pharisee. And that's why in verse 40, Jesus starts to say this. There were two people who were in debt. Why did he say two? He's talking to Simon and her. He's trying to explain to Simon I freely forgave you both. You're no better than her, but he didn't catch on. His mind was still like, oh, you're talking about this woman, the one who's greatly in debt to you. But he didn't realize, it says there in the verse, Jesus said in, in verse 42, he said, when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave both of them. What does that mean? It means the best Christian in this building and the worst sinner that came to this building, you couldn't pay the debt back. All you could do is receive this gift of his love. And you are equally as bad as a person who is a prostitute in the town. The debt might have been different in scale, but the point wasn't the the amount of money that you owed. The point was neither of you could pay him back. Simon missed this because Simon being a Pharisee and being afraid of the human opinion of those who are seated at the table, afraid to get down on his feet and wash Jesus' feet at the door. What's he doing? He's honouring the guy who's going against Israel? I thought he was a Pharisee. Afraid to be vulnerable. This man actually was, in a way, Jesus wasn't shaming him, but this man was put on contrasting, you know, God, God made a contrast here between two lovers. He was put on show a little bit saying, this woman, she's, she's got all this debt, and yet I came here and he said, you didn't do any of this for me. He was showing that there is a person and a way that you can love God more. And it's to do with the way we see ourselves. I'll never forget this story that Bill Johnson shared. He was next to Heidi Baker and they were in church and this woman came and she was wearing a skirt about this high, like a mini skirt, you know? And she came right up to the front for worship. They call everybody to the front like we do, you know? And like we do here today, it's wonderful, deep, beautiful worship, by the way. It's like, I feel like you have kind of like a tribal worship here. It's amazing. And, uh, <laughs> and so she, she was there, this girl in a mini skirt, and she came up the front of Bethel and, 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 uh, and, and Heidi was there as a guest speaker, I guess. And, and, and so she was there and this woman came up and she starts doing this. She starts dancing like this and she starts moving her hips and, you know, I'm not going to do it for you because this camera's rolling. But, um, <laughs> you know, when David danced before the Lord, it says he pleased the Lord with his dancing. I think when I do that in my bedroom, God's like, Jesus, let's watch Kung Fu Panda down there for a minute, you know. That's, <laughs> he's, uh, it's a little different. <laughs> but, but the Lord loves the heart, huh? He loves the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. Anyway, this woman's like this, crazy dancing. And Bill, you know, Bill, he's like, and he really, I learned to worship the Lord in a unique way. All of us have our own expression. No one's a carbon copy. No love you give from your heart. Each one was fashioned in his image. There's no love that you can give to the Lord out of your heart that is the same as another's. It's so precious, but yet it's connected to the others. It's, so, it's such a mystery. The bride, the bridegroom, the mystery of Jesus in the church. Anyway, so this woman's getting really crazy, you know? And, and Heidi's just kind of, you know, Heidi, like, she's, you know, how she is. And Bill, he's, <clears throat> he's getting distracted. And then she's like, woohoo! She's jumping and she's yelling. She's being very, she's disturbing people. And Bill gets annoyed after a bit. 
I think it was, and he, he's very patient, probably a good bit. But miniskirt, you got to picture this girl, miniskirt, way too tight. And I think even people notice people looking at her, you know? And Bill's like, what is going on? She's right in front of him. Well, I guess Heidi knew the lady. And right before Bill went to rebuke this girl, now his rebuke would have been very wise. It would have been like, please just, you know, please be quiet and whatnot. Right before he goes, Heidi turns to Bill and looks at him and goes, isn't that wonderful? (laughs) And Bill's like, yeah, yeah. You know, you know how Bill is? Oh, wow, wow, wow. You know, all that stuff. He's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And he goes, that woman, I found out that woman only four weeks ago, she was a prostitute. What happened in Bill's heart? See, the extravagance of your love, the way that you lose your respectability, the innocence of you being childlike before God, the way you pour out your fragrant oil to Him, irrespective of the way people see you. I'm not talking about a lack of wisdom where you get up in the middle of worship and take the microphone from the worship leader. I'm not talking about rebellion and the need to be seen. What I'm talking about is the need to give Him something that is extravagant. In the midst of that, Jesus draws very near to these kind of lovers because he sees that they love him above all human opinion. And those people, although judged sometimes, leave with fragrant oil. And when they leave with fragrant oil, what they become is they become a scent and fragrance to things, an offence to the sin of the world, and they become a drawing place to those who seek for God, and then also to others who are stuck in religion, who have found themselves over the years falling into this statement that that some man made, we don't know who he is, but every one of us would like to slap him a few times. It's the man who said you're in your honeymoon period with God. This is the stupidest statement I think that's ever entered Western Christianity because there's no such thing. There's no scriptural context for a honeymoon. That's a Western made up marriage deal. In the Jewish context, it's glory to glory. It's cleaving even deeper It's love that is so deep. It's a wedding bridal ceremony where everybody can see for seven days how in love you are with this person. And it's a a continuum. It's not a, it slows down and stops here. It gets deeper. I feel like we, we should all be able to look back and go, I'm more in love with God than when I met Him. And if you're losing that innocent flame and you're losing that innocent extravagance and now you've become so professional and so well to do, that your love has gone cold. See, some part of, if, if that's happened, it's, it's as simple as, as letting go of this respectability and coming back to the innocence of his feet and saying, I've got this jar of oil. I've kept it all for you. I want to break it open again so there's no one else it can be for. It's that simple. But if you've become professional, which many, many, many people do, some of you like, <laughs> this has happened to me so many times where the Lord's like, son, you're not being yourself. You're trying to be somebody people will respect. If you look at me and love on me, people will respect it because they'll sense me in you. You weren't made to be a pseudo you who fits into every circumstance, place and and, and characteristic of everybody's need for you. You are meant to be you in love with Jesus. You're meant to be a flame that people can't stop looking at, even if it offends them. But that flame comes from the forsaking of respectability above all to love and bless the feet of the Lord, 
to kiss his feet, to have affection for God. I remember this sticker I got when I was about two years old in the Lord. Someone gave it to me and it said, real men love Jesus. And I stuck it, slapped it on my car as quick as I could because I knew, I knew the people that I was around. They were too much men and not enough lovers. But this woman, he was vulnerable. So people say, well, you're, you love Jesus a lot because you were forgiven much. I'm like, so are you. You couldn't pay the debt back either. You just don't understand that. Don't become Simon where your Christianity is so respectable to you that your faithfulness is now an enemy to your faithful love. You can't live that way. So the Lord approaches this woman and looks at her and that's how He looks at you. And He's like, thank you for this gift. And He says, the many sins you've committed, they're meaningless to me because they're gone now. It's just love between us now. Your great love has proved that you want nothing to do with sin because that alabaster oil that you could sell for some other thing to fill you, you've broken it open. You've got nothing left but me. Let's look at another story in, in the book of John. Turn to John chapter 7. <laughs> a lover with a hot heart will forever break the rules. <laughs> They'll forever dance with a miniskirt. Don't wear a miniskirt, I'm just saying. <laughs> you know, one time... Um, I'm, I'm not married and, um, and I'm single, as Eric so gracefully reminded me this morning. Um, <laughs> I'd like to be married, but anyway. In my first few years of salvation, I still treat the Lord like this. But in my first few years, like, I'm like, okay, you are my lover. I was doing getaways with him. I still do. But I was like, you're my lover. So Valentine's Day came, you know, and everybody's talking about their Valentine. And I had one. He just wasn't on the earth. He was in the realm of the spirit. But I went to the florist and I said, hey, can I get 12 beautiful roses? And I said, and they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, excited. I'm like, I want these 12 roses. And I got 12 roses and I wrote a letter to Jesus and I said, dear King Jesus, I'm in love with you. You're so precious to me, the way you treat me, the way you're faithful, the way you're kind and merciful to me. How could you be this good to me? How could you love me the way you... 12 roses in, in like a, a vase. I don't even know how did they work. I just, you know, I don't have vases. I just got a vase and put it there. And I put these 12 roses there and I could see them every day where I'd sit in my lounge room and read the Scriptures. I'd look up at those roses and think of the King. And think of how He's the Rose of Sharon, the Pearl of Great Price, the one who was crushed beautifully for me so I could be beautified by Him. And I would look at Him and just love on Him, you know? And I wrote this letter and I said, Dear Jesus, I love You so deeply. Happy Valentine's Day, my King. I wanna love You more. Please bend me, yield my will to love You more. Then I asked Him three questions. I said, these three things are on my heart, on my mind, and I need to know the answers to these three things, Lord. I wanna be wise, I wanna do Your will. I got an envelope. I kept the roses in my house so I could have that between he and I. I got an envelope. I wrote 777, Heaven's Highway, addressed to the Lord Jesus. I posted it with a stamp. I don't know what the people who work at US Post and all these other places think, but they probably open it and go, there's another fruitcake that's sending Jesus letters, you know. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. I even had a return address on there. So they knew who the fruitcake was. <laughs> but... <laughs> But 
as I sent it, I forgot about it, you know? But you know, you would think that something as silly as that means nothing to God. Guys, we were not, He didn't break His body open to bring you into a doctrine of who God is. This is why it cracks me up when people try and justify sin. Oh, we've been forgiven. All our sins are forgiven. Past, present, future. I'm like, do you understand who your sin is? It's not against the doctrine. It's a person you're fellowshipping with now. We were separated from a person. This was not separation from the understanding of God, although that is part of it. It's separation from being a son, being yoked to the Lord. And so I'm writing to Jesus, you know, three months later, I'm coming home from work. I wasn't a minister then, I was working. I was working actually at a place called Cash Converters where the people bring in uh, like often criminals, bring in stolen things and say, oh, yeah, this is my laptop and I wanna sell it, you know? And you have to discern whether they're a criminal or not. So my discernment game got sharp. Um, and one guy brought 600 or something or 65 uh, iPods one time. And he's like, oh, I just, I was given it. My company uh, got a bonus and stuff. And the Lord told me he stole them all. <laughs> and he did, he got busted. But um, so I worked in this place, you know, and I'm walking home from the bus one day. And my house is probably from here to the very furthest car park. And I'm looking at my house. I'm just, you know how you are with you. Back then I had a, like a Walkman or something with a CD. And, um, and I'm walking like this and, or no, mini disc. Remember them? Mini disc. Yeah, this is like ancient stuff. Some of you 18-year-old kids are like, what's a mini disc, man? So I'm walking and I see my house like this and the Lord says, your reply has arrived. And I'm like, my reply has arrived? In my head, I'm like, I'm like what the heck? And, and I ran, I mean, I took off the mailbox. And I get to the mailbox and, and I open it up. Sure enough, there's a handwritten, now I never get letters except from creditors and things back then. I never get anything from, no one sends a letter to me. I was 25 or something, 24. No one sends a letter to me. I see a handwritten to Ben Fitzgerald. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And for a minute, I was like, like I didn't want to even touch it. Because I thought if I turn over the back, is it really from the Lord? You know, like I had Gabriel write this for me. You know, like I was freaking out. I, I took it out of my... I took it out of the letterbox and I turned it over and it was from my grandma. I'm like, oh, it's from grandma. <laughs> but nevertheless, I was curious because the Lord said, your reply has arrived. I open it up. Dear Ben, I don't know why I felt to write this letter to you, but God impressed it very deeply on my heart. He loves you so, so much. And he impressed it deeply on my heart to give these three answers. <laughs> you don't think he sees, he sees. You don't think he remembers, he remembers. The love that you show to a homeless man when you give them a cup of cold water in his name, you will surely receive a reward, whether it's in this life or the life to come. He remembers the extravagance of your love, of stopping for somebody who doesn't, you don't feel, or the, the world tells you doesn't deserve to be loved. He remembers that you would tell a prostitute that she's, you're worth Jesus loving you. He loves you enough to die for you. He remembers that when you don't judge, but you just see that God could redeem. Some of you are like, I can't wait till Valentine's Day. I'm gonna get me some flowers and some orchids. Well, here's an example of this, a second woman that Jesus is confronted with. Let's read it together, but I wanna start at chapter 7 here first, and I want to just highlight this one verse here. Verse 37, 737. 
It says this, On the last great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. (laughs) Don't you love this verse? Tributaries, rivers, depths of God, life. But he started that verse, these minuscule things we can pass over. It says, on the last great day of the feast. What feast was that? When they had the Feast of Tabernacles, Sakath or whatever it is called, all of Israel would come to Jerusalem. You have to picture this for a second. When we see this, it's very, very deep. Jesus is standing in this place in front of the, where they have the Baymar, where Moses' seat is in the tabernacle, the temple. And on the last great day of this feast, the high priest of the Jewish day would take a flask of water. He'd hold it up because Israel had three systems of water, rain, rivers, and then they had these, what, what they call springs. To them, springs were sacred. They believed springs were holy. And, uh, you know, rain as well, you see a lot of Old Testament things about God pour rain on us again. Psalms is full of that. But, but you see that springs especially are holy. So on the last great day of the feast, I want you to picture this. There's this huge spring that's in front of this giant temple. And Jesus stands up in this spot and says, Come to me if you're thirsty. Anyone who comes to me won't just get filled with water, but will have a well that never runs out. He says this on the last day. That's the same day that the Pharisee stands. You know what they used to say in Jesus' day? They would take a glass of that water and say, we thank you, God, the God of Israel, who's here with us in Zion. And they'd say, you have given us the living water. They'd call it living water. Okay, so just so you understand this. All right, now let's fast forward to chapter eight. This is what Jesus said. Now, he goes up at night to pray and he comes back down. Let's start at verse one. Early in the morning, he came to the temple again and he came to the people and he sat down and taught them. So he came back to this spot where he's just said, I am the living water, where the high priest at once a year says, no, 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 God has given us the living water of Israel. So Jesus is making a solid mockery in, in, in their eyes, he's like mocking the fact that, so you can understand why they were incensed by him. You know, he, they're like, this is the Holy Spring God gave us. And then he's like, no, I am the living water. So he said that there for a reason. Chapter, verse two of chapter eight, it says this, oh, sorry, verse three of eight. The scribes then brought a woman to Jesus caught in adultery. And they set her in the midst of him and said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. This is the feast of tabernacles. These men were beyond wickedness. There's a reason Jesus could call them dogs. They weren't even half-hearted. These men are using one person's sin, dragging her, the man isn't there by the way, dragging her to the footstool of the temple where Jesus is seated and now using her sin to try and trap Him. Think about how wicked that is. You found out someone robbed a bank, you take the bank robber, use his gun, and you take another guy, put his hand in that guy's gun and shoot shoot a person, and now you've doubled the guilt. These people didn't want to find redemption. They wanted to use people's sin to get more people in trouble. They didn't care about what the love of God could do. They didn't care about mercy. And Jesus makes an example of them here, as He did with Simon. 
but a much more harsh example, but it's an example of his love. The woman's there. Verse 6, they said this to test him, that they might have something to which accuse him. But Jesus stooped on the ground and wrote with his finger as though he did not hear. Isn't that beautiful? He's like, he's like, they're like, blah, 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 and he's like, and he starts writing on the ground. This would make them furious, you know, more mad. The woman's there. She's like this, her heart. She's half naked, probably beaten a little bit, probably hurt, probably covered in blood over her face. And he's just stooped on the ground. He's in perfect rest. He's in dominion over this situation, whether they think they are or not. He's in perfect rest. He knows what he's about to say. She's afraid of her own life. Verse 7, they continue to ask him. (laughs) He said then to them, he rose himself up, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, second time, he stooped to the ground and he wrote with his finger. When there's a Talmud or a Talmudin, someone in the Israeli culture who's taught to be a disciple, they learn from their rabbi, they follow everything he does. And the rabbinical system is to ask questions in order to get you to learn. Be like saying, it'd be like me doing a cryptic rhyme or saying to you, let's say a verse like, um, he leads me beside still waters. And I start the verse and I just say, he leads me. And their mind will go immediately to every verse where God leads his people. So their mind would go, oh, still waters, he means Psalm 23. Or if I'd use the next verse or the verse before it, they would finish it in their mind. They were so trained to intricately know the scriptures that when you would say one thing, they could understand a whole concept. That's how they were taught. These told me Dean. So Jesus writes on the ground one time. He gets up and he says, who's without sin here? Again, he demonstrates that there's nobody who doesn't need the mercy of God. He puts them on equal playing, same as he did with the woman and the Pharisee Simon. He puts them on an equal playing field. And then he says this, he goes back to the ground. He writes and he's on the ground for a second time. It says, verse nine, those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone standing with the woman in her midst. Can you imagine this? Probably some disciples over to the left, the Pharisees there, the woman, and you just got Jesus here looking at this woman and everybody's departed. Well, why did they depart? Their conscience was convicted, but perhaps there's a deeper meaning. Jesus has just stood in the place where they say they have living water. And he says, I am the fountain of life. Come to me, I'll pour my love into you. I will give you rest. I will make you whole. This was him alluding to himself as God. Come to me, I will give you rest. Moses said to God, God, how shall we go to the promised land if you're not with us? The Lord answered and said, I shall be with you and I will give you rest. So Jesus was constantly alluding himself to God. I am God. And in this case, He stooped to the ground twice. Turn your Bible over to Jeremiah 17. And he's got this woman who's guilty in his midst. Jeremiah 17, verse 13. It's it's not a quick turn, but Jeremiah 17, 13. Perhaps you can even just put on the screen for the people here. So I want you to picture this again. You've got this, this spring of water, this guilty woman, these Pharisees who know how to condemn. They don't understand mercy or love. Then you have Jesus, this woman who's just sitting there ready to die and he stoops down with his finger. Why? Because every Pharisee understands that the action of a rabbi or even one word of a rabbi is pointing to something. Jeremiah 17, 13 says this. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. 
Those who depart from me shall be written in the dust of the earth. Ready for this? What's the next verse? Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Okay, so the fountain of life. They're there to accuse. He's there to love. I didn't come to the the earth to destroy life, but to save it. I didn't come to judge, but to free. The religious hypocrisy that was in Pharisees, it didn't take long for them to realise he's talking about us and they started to depart. But he used himself again as a statement of the fountain of living waters. I can't prove that this is right, but it's very likely that it is because that scripture in the great day of the feast correlates to this. After that, Jesus looks at the woman and he says, where are your accusers? And she said, there's none anymore. I love that he let her answer that because she could have said there's one, it's you. What happened in this exchange? Before he said you're forgiven, she already knew his nature. Did you catch that? Where are those who accuse you? She could have gone, well, will you accuse me? She didn't, she said, they're gone. And then he said, neither do I condemn you. Then he said, go and sin no more. This is the wonder of the love of God on the least of society, on the person who has blood guilt because of their sin. Was she an adulteress? Yes. In church life, in our community, our love, Peter says, should never be with hypocrisy. It should be without it, which means this. We should love a person who's the weakest of these and the strongest. Do we sense measures of favour on, on, on some? Do we sense that some people's lives are not pleasing to God? For sure. But what is this? what's the purpose? The purpose isn't always to drag them into the courts of punishment. The purpose is to reveal to them the living water. The purpose is to say your name wasn't written in the dust. Your name was actually pierced through his hands. And because of that piercing, you can have a fountain of living water in you. And even if you're in the weakest place, the worst sin, even if there's a misunderstanding between you guys, God still paid something for that person. So the love that's in our midst must be without hypocrisy. It must be fragrant and it also must be extravagant in the way that we forget what people think of us and just love Him first. The church, this building, every church in the world, first and foremost, the person they are to please in the room is not the people, it's not the clock, it's the Lord. It's Him, it's His presence in our midst. Let's read a few more scriptures. Um, I'll just read them from here. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. What is happening in the world right now? A redefinition of love. What did Jesus say in John 13? They will know you by your love one for another. John 17, Jesus said, they will know you by your love, by you laying down your life for each other. The world's redefinition is actually really amazing for the church because it's so muddy, it's such a grey area, it has so little truth in it that any person with real genuine conviction and being filled with the Spirit, being filled with this river, being filled with a fountain of love towards somebody looks tangibly, feels tangibly and is tangibly life-givingly different to the way the world functions in love. Jesus here was life-givingly different to culture. They were addicted to principles. He was addicted, was, sorry, he was not addicted. I'll never say that about him. They were addicted though to principles. He was led by the love of the Father. They were addicted to finding the answer. He was moved with compassion. The Greek word 
splagegemai, I think it is, which means move to the bowels with compassion. I shared with you yesterday, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. The word seek is crave. The Son of Man craved you. In the midst of this community, we need to understand we are representing a person who thinks for us Jesus. We are His body. If we represent Him well, they'll love His body, not just Him. Many people love Jesus, but they don't love His body. Why? I hear it on the street all the time. They say, church is full of hypocrites. Have you ever heard that? Because someone was hurt when the love of God wasn't strong. Now, we live in a generation that's hurt if the wind blows the wrong way. I'm not saying to you, I'm not saying to you we change doctrine, the truth. This is the truth. This will not change. The 66 books, by the way, in that tabernacle across from, from where that table of showbread was, was the menorah. It looks like this. The seven lampstands goes like that. Each lampstand represents the seven spirits of God, representing the revelation of who God is to the world, the light of the world. Jesus coming, saying, I'm the light of the world, John 1. But each one of these seven lampstands had buds on it. Guess how many buds were on the menorah? 66. What does that mean? This. Each book of the Bible was there. God had it all set up and designed to be fulfilled by Jesus, the, the Word, the Rema, the Logos in a man. So we don't change the Word, but here's the problem. Many people are in church enjoying God, enjoying being forgiven, and then they create this dividing line in their mind. It's the us and them mentality. The only difference between me loving Jesus and knowing Jesus and this woman who's on the ground caught in the act of adultery is that I've already met Him and in five minutes she will. That's the only difference. So our love must be without hypocrisy. Does it mean we correct? Yes, because if we don't correct and tell the truth to one another in love, we're liars, Colossians says. Colossians 1, don't lie to one another since you put that off with your old man. Our love must be deeper though than our judgment. We can't get in our mind a pharisaical mindset that says Christians ought to be this way and start to judge the extravagance of one against another or start to pinpoint how bad the world is and how bad this certain person is and not have the doors of the church and the doors of your heart wide open to love the Lord and a sinner the way God loves them. Let's read one more verse together and I'm gonna pray for you. Remember, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? Was he creating a competitive structure? No. Was he trying to make Peter, did Peter walk around after that going, hey guys, um, just so you're aware, I won this thing with the Lord and he told me I love him more than everyone. So, um, so you guys are, you know, just listen to what I say from now on and you'll be great. He didn't do that. <laughs> Go to 1, 1 Corinthians 13. As you're turning there, I'll, I'll read two, three scriptures to you. Jeremiah 4.3 says, break up the fellow of your hearts, circumcise your hearts unto the Lord. 1 Peter 4.8 says, above all, love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Colossians 3.14, over all these virtues put on love. There's other virtues, there's other great things, there's worship with innocence, there's the virtue of integrity. It doesn't matter if you do not have love because this one comes above all, which binds them together in perfect unity. Do you realise you're gifting? the way, the trajectory you have with the grace God poured on you, it's only bound together in the Lord, stable in the Lord and going to function in the Spirit. It can only spiritually function by the Holy Ghost if your love binds it together with you and God. Because if you don't have love, you'll just build a big ministry and you'll hate everybody and hurt everybody and, and then you'll crash. Have we ever seen that before? Have we ever seen somebody stop drinking of the love of God and all of a sudden they have another fountain called prostitute? 
Another fountain called money and they're in prison now. My friend John Bevere told me he met with a major minister. This man was in prison for stealing money. And John told me, he said, when I went and met with him, he asked this guy, he said, what happened? He goes, I stopped fearing the Lord. He stopped seeing the awe of being with God. And John so aptly describes it afterwards by saying, I don't fear the Lord because I'm afraid of Him. I'm afraid from being anywhere apart from Him. Because you don't want to be separated from His love. Right? I sounded like Eric then with that quote. I did that. (laughs) Eric has a Rolodex in his brain. It's unbelievable. I need him to lay hands on me because the Rolodex of his mind, it's phenomenal how God has made him to function. Don't you think? I'm like, I hope, I hope he quotes me one day because he's like, Ben Fitzgerald once said, Ben Fitzgerald once said, the Lord sees him when he dances as Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> Therefore, dance before the Lord. If he can, you can. All right. <laughs> the point is, guys, this love binds our calling together. It binds the gifting to the Lord. It, it, it makes everything pure. It purifies the offering of your Yes. Your, your love, your yes to God without love for God means nothing. Your yes to God with hatred towards your fellow man, it's not bound together. It's a scattered, messy yes. And consequently, your life will be a scattered, messy life. Love creates the faithful stream. 1 Corinthians 13, 1, you know this verse. Let's look at it maybe in a different way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. You remember the high priest again, walking into here? The high priest was covered with bells around him. Everybody knows why. If he went into the Holy of Holies, his offering was unacceptable. He would drop dead. The bells would stop moving. They would pull him by the cord that was around his, uh, around his waist and they'd pull him out because he dropped dead in the presence of a holy God. God wasn't trying to kill anybody, but God's presence, just by eminent nature, the universe is breathing out of him. He's big. If you walk into one of the biggest facilities in America where they have these giant magnets and you get between those two magnets, you will magnetically blow up. God's power is awesome. And so these bells would go and on the, the priest's garment, around his garment, there'd be a stitched pomegranate, which represented the fruitfulness, prosperity, favour and blessing of the Lord. And this stitched pomegranate would be in one place and then right next to it would be a bell and then a pomegranate and a bell and a pomegranate. Let me tell you something. If you take the fruit of the Spirit out of the way, you've got two clanging cymbals. You get it? If you don't walk into the presence of God and the presence of God's people and be a priest filled with love, you've got clanging noisy gongs. This was all prophetic of the future of how we'd live for Jesus. Then he says this, Verse two, if I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, I don't, I've never met anyone like that. But if you do get that, if you can understand all knowledge, how did these people build this? Well, they built it this way. How does heaven work? Heaven works this way. And there's an angel that takes you here. How do you see in the spirit? Oh, this person, I can see everything about their life. I have all prophecy, all knowledge, all mysteries and all faith so that I can even say mountain move. But have not love? You are unimpressive to God. We're impressed by, oh, do you see His faith? God is impressed if the faith is undergirded by this current of love. Verse three, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Now this is the biggest one because sacrificial love is what we talk about a lot. 
This one looks like the real, this is the key, man. This is how you prove it to God that you've made your yes real. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burnt, but have not love. Listen to this. It profits me nothing. Does it profit those I gave my body for? Does it profit those I gave food to? Yeah. He didn't say it doesn't profit others. They can see that God is a provider, but it profits you nothing. So you get to the end of your life and you'll be like, you look back and you go, I did all these things and I have no joy inside. Not only that, I have a trail of broken relationships. What profit do I have? You have no profit because love wasn't strong. Verse four, and this is the beauty. This is probably, in my opinion, one of the greatest discourses of Scripture. I mean, all of it is great, but just the, the, this would be Eric's way of saying things. (laughs) Love suffers long. This is poetic. Love suffers long and is kind. Paul put those two together. Come here, Nathan. Come here, come up on stage. I want you to push me a little bit, just a little bit. Not too much, just a bit. <laughs> okay, you push me, but, but that's all right. Okay, that's fine. Okay, keep going. <laughs> he pushed me again. <laughs> okay. Okay, Nathan, I can very clearly see you pushing me. <laughs> okay. All right. Hey, Nathan, how are you? Well? Oh, okay. Look, it's okay. I have long suffering in my heart. That's not what Paul said. What did he say? Push me. I love you. <laughs> it's okay if you push me again. I love you. He didn't say be patient and tolerant. Love suffers long and then has kindness coming straight out of it. Make sense? Thank you. Do we see that anywhere in Scripture? Jesus on the cross. Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they've done. My friend, you've sinned against God. These nails were for you. You are a true thief and I am the innocent king. But today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't just suffer long. He was kind. That's an upgrade. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. If you are competing with people to try and be envious of their calling in their life with God, you are failing, friend. I never will forget Reinhard Bonnke's statement that he made about his brother, Peter. And Reinhard said it like this, one day my brother Peter, he said it like that, had some sweeties. He called them sweeties, candies. And he said, Peter ran out with these candies, chocolates. And he said, In my mind, I was like, Reinhardt, where did he get the chocolates? (laughs) And Peter said to him, to Reinhardt, he said, I got them from mummy. And instead of getting mad at Peter and trying to envy, take his chocolate away, take his calling away, pull him down, we do this all the time. We see God elevating with a favour on someone's life and we look immediately for the 1% areas of their life that they're not good in. Oh, he's amazing, but... Be careful that that but doesn't become a major plank in your own eye. And all of a sudden, people won't just say but to you. They'll come at you with chainsaws to try and cut it out. What we sow in this life, we will surely reap. We, God is not mocked. If you sow to the flesh, you reap from it corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, you reap from it the glory of God, the everlasting life of God. You reap from the realm of God. So he said, okay, if Peter has sweeties, I know where he got them. He got them from mummy. And he said to himself, rather than get mad at Peter, if mummy gave Peter sweeties, I know mummy's nature, she'll give me sweeties. 
So he went to mummy. Some of you, instead of being envious and boastful and proud in your heart and trying to find out that you're on the Christian ladder one step above the guy under you, you just need to go to God and get from God what He wants to give you. Stop competing and being envious for what others have. This is how love works. Love is very practical. It's really practical. I'm not jealous of any Christian minister anymore. I used to be. God, my voice sounds Australian. My voice is not, I don't have this superfluous, you know, bonkies like, get saved. And it sounds like the whole room thunders. I'm like, I don't have that God. I'm a bit overweight. I'm a different kind of egg. But the Lord, I just started going, but you made me who I am. I can't change this. Let me tell you something very wise. If two of you become identical in this earth, one of you is unnecessary here. If you want to be like somebody else, you may as well go home. Okay, it doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't rejoice in showing how great you are and how bad that person is. A human being who loves Jesus Christ, if you really know the Lord, you will not wedge your godliness against somebody's failure. You will be like Jesus and get down there on the, on the ground and right on the ground and look at that woman and go, okay, how can I, what can I do here? How can I pour living water on her life? Even if you see failure in other people, I encourage you to live the Scriptures. Go home into your room. Pray in secret to the Father. Ask the Lord to bless them. This happened to me at Bethel. A man was very mad at me because, uh, and he wanted to control me when I worked there because the anointing was flowing out of me. I'd start like home groups, bang. People get saved, drug addicts are getting saved. I started like help start 17 home groups and I wasn't part of all of them, but I oversaw them. This guy got mad at me. He worked on staff longer than me and here comes this little Aussie kid into Redding, California and I start these house churches and they were connected to Bethel. They were under Bethel. It wasn't under Ben. It wasn't a rebellious little move. In fact, Bill loved it so much because people were finally getting saved in the neighbourhoods. Well, this guy had worked in this outreach department and he was really like, he had his methods, but they weren't working. And so we clashed heavily to the point where we had to have one of the main leaders sit in the meeting as we're both saying, no, you said this, you said that, blah, 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 blah. Well, I went home that day and I was like, God, and I was upset in my heart, so upset. I went into my bedroom and I said, Lord, He has control. He doesn't wanna let me be free. And I started to pray, Lord, break the control off him. And as quick as I prayed that first sentence, I heard the Lord say, Ben, like that. And I knew he wasn't, it wasn't one of those times where God was like, how beautiful and sweet thy heart is, you know. <laughs> it wasn't like that. He said, Ben. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he said, I want you to pray for my absolute best in my will for his life right now. And I said, what do you mean? He said, pray I would bless him. Pray I would turn his heart toward my love. Pray that he would be flooded with my spirit. I begin to pray that. He and I became incredibly close friends. And you know what happened? You know what happened? The Lord did bless him. And my judgment, my failure to love, my puffed upness was gone. Instead, I had this edifice of building up. Edifice, that's the Greek word for love builds up, which means it builds a wall to protect somebody's growth. It edifies. Keep going here. Verse five, doesn't behave rudely, doesn't seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. That's challenging. Thinks no evil, but we can get there. I'm not even gonna to touch on that. It's too much of a mystery. It doesn't rejoice in inequity, but rejoice in the truth. If you ever hear a pastor say that inequity is okay because God's forgiven you, that pastor's not okay. That pastor has no understanding about the rejoicing in the person of Jesus, the truth. He just rejoices in getting away with it. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, 
endures all things. These are very finality statements. All things, all things, all things. Does it believe all things? Someone comes in here, there's an alien out in the car park. No, I don't believe you. It believes all things from God. It believes everything God says. It gets filled with the thinking of God. It trusts that God will work a scenario out. It trusts that God, who's mighty to save, can save them as he saved you. It doesn't judge too quickly. It's patient. It waits to have its wisdom from the Lord. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And then this weird thing comes up here. You ready? For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect has come, that which in part will be done away with, that's the fullness of redemption when Jesus returns. But there's this very strange scripture here. Can you put up this very weird verse? I want you to just think about this verse for a second, okay? He's gone, love does this, love does this, love does this, prophecy does this, the fullness of times will come, we'll all be with God, then we'll be perfectly complete. Then he says this, next verse, 11 says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. This is the most out of context verse. It's really weird when you think, read it through, you're like, okay. I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. There's three things Paul highlights here about the walk of love. First and foremost, he's saying this. If you can't live this way, you may be a child of God, but you're not yet mature. You might still be in the kingdom, but you're not yet mature. And there's principles of what he says that is. He says, I spoke as a kid. Be careful what you say. There's, a, there's a, not a fear, but the dove on the shoulder concept of God in your mouth, God listening to your conversation. And are you speaking the truth? Is it bathed in love? Confirming verses like speak the truth in love. Again, let your love be without hypocrisy. So if you're telling the truth, are you telling the truth to be right or to be righteous? Second thing, I understood as a child. Childlike understanding. You can see everything wrong with the world, but it can't understand what God is doing in the midst. Childlike understanding can see the faults of everybody, but cannot understand or comprehend how could God change this. A mature person, though, understands that love conquers all. Love can get in. Love can work its ways. And lastly, he says, I thought as a child. Selfishness, bickering, gossip, slander, criticism, comparison, seeing people for what they're not instead of the, the way that they're on a journey to love God, the shepherding element of the heart of Jesus, the woman caught in adultery but didn't really want to be caught and didn't probably want to do it, but maybe the man forced her. Who knows? But God looks upon the heart. Your understanding has to be through the concept of His love for people. Because if it's not, we will reproduce what the world calls us hypocrites for. They will say, well, He was so nice to me until He found out I sexually sinned. I was in a church once where a man was saved for four weeks or so. And I'll never forget this. The pastor takes the Bible literally. You should. It is literal. The Bible does say, rebuke a divisive person after the second and third admonition. You should kind of excommunicate them in a way. That is 100% true. 
But the Bible also says, let everything be done in love. So even when you're doing that, you're like, friend, this is toxic, what you're doing. But we care about you. Come back when you wanna be changed. This guy didn't care about that. This guy took all those judgment verses and he put them on his shoulders and he was ready to fire that gun whenever he could. This dude came in who was saved for four weeks and he slept with his girlfriend again. I think he might've done it twice. The pastor told him again, don't do that anymore. And he did it again. Went from four weeks to two months. And then after two months, the pastor decided to publicly warn the church because Paul said, rebuke them openly. Is there a place for that? Yes, there is. Even my old pastor, Bill Johnson, rebuked a man publicly. It went on the front page of Charisma magazine because he hardly ever would do that. But the man was so dangerous to the spirit realm, to Christians who were receiving things from him. He was really dangerous. But it took nearly four years for him to do that because he was praying, God, turn, turn the man. Now he never gave the guy a microphone, but my old pastor in Australia, after two months being saved, got up there and by name pointed this young Christian out. He has slept with his girlfriend, he's an adulteress and he's out of the church. What does that man think of Jesus? Jesus has zero long suffering. How do we know? How can we tell where the measuring stick, where does it lie? Two months, two years of that? How can we tell? There's only one way to tell. When you're in a posture of love with God, He will give you the wisdom you need to see. When you're in the correct posture of the Lord, when you're in intimate union with Him, when that river is deep in you, He will give you more than principles. He will give you His thoughts. Why am I saying this? When I was a child, I thought as a child. Childlike immature thinking is when you don't think the way God thinks about scenarios. But we can be reformed, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'll finish with this. We see in a mirror dimly, we know in part then, but then I shall know just as I am also known. Now abide these three, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Nathan, come up here. I'm not going to have him push me again. We'll do a Kung Fu Panda dance together. I'm just kidding. I want Nathan to pray. When he did this altar call so beautifully before, he was saying, let's surrender and give our all to God. I feel the, the love of the Spirit of God doing two or three things right now in your hearts as I'm talking. Here's what I, what I sense. There's probably more things. But I sense he's returning you to this place where you don't care what people think of your love for God. He's returning you where respectability comes second to adoration. Right? And where you can be in church and even if you're a pastor and, and even, you know, you've got a big ministry, full stadiums, whatever, you can still be a person on the floor. You can still say sorry for the things that you said wrong instead of always being the right guy in the room because you're anointed. It doesn't give you the opportunity to be unkind. The most impressive thing to me is when I meet a man with revelation who stops and talks with the people of God, who doesn't get whisked away into a green room where he's so special that nobody can touch him anymore. Jesus never did that. I don't mind a green room. I go to mega churches and preach all the time there, Pastor Tom. I don't mind if they take me there. The food's amazing. <laughs> but, and I'm not against that. And I'm not saying every ministry is like that. But what happens sometimes is people get so high, so puffed up, that there's no kindness anymore. There's no tenderness in their heart. There's no ability to say sorry. 
But we can never ever be like that because our Lord was never like that. So I feel the Lord is returning some of you to this kind of like, this like, you know what? I'm getting flowers for Valentine's Day for Jesus. I'm going to be here crazy. I'm going to, I'm going to dance in worship like crazy with no miniskirt, no miniskirt. But He's returning you. And some of you men, older men especially, older men especially who are like, I know God. I'm like, you don't look like you do. God looks happier than you. Some of you older men need to be like, honey, let's love on Jesus today, baby. And just love on Jesus, you know? And if you're single, guys, women want a guy who's in love already. They want a man who's burning for the King. Because that's a man you can trust. Second thing I feel the Lord's doing, the Holy Spirit is convicting some of you that perhaps you've been a little too quick to judge. Perhaps you don't understand the manifold grace of God, as Ephesians says, that there is many graces, and if they're not like you, you feel like they have to be, and if they're not, you don't like them. Guys, you cannot say to God, I'm sorry, God, it's wrong how you made them. You can't do it. You've got to go, God, I don't get it, and they don't get me, but if we go together, something might happen. That's what happened with me and my friend in Bethel. We became great friends, even though we think in polar opposite ways. He thinks very logically. He thinks of planning everything. I think let's go where the wind goes. And he's thinking, let's build something so the wind can go better. But I learned from him. (laughs) I learned from him. Do not judge based on the differences you have. Let Make sure your difference doesn't make a difference. So God's convicting you. You've judged some people here. People need to come into an environment where they sense your love one for another. The third thing is this, don't judge the world too harshly. Do not condemn sinners too quickly. Yes, be strong. Some with fire you save, some with compassion, James 5. My mom saved by telling you're going to hell. That's how she was saved. Me, compassion of the mercy of God. It's okay if it's that way. But some people love the going to hell part a lot more than they love the I'll be merciful to you for six months part. They like that because they feel right. Do not get your value from a Facebook war. Do not get your value from a comment about how evil the world is and how righteous you are. Yes, Satan is working, but we need to be working harder. How does our river flow? It flows by love. So those three things, if you want your innocence back, your joyful, broken alabaster box back, you want to repent of gossip, criticism of your brethren, and then you want to go, God, change me. Let my thinking not be like a kid anymore. Let me think in the wisdom of love the maturity of love. That's what I sense the three things God's doing. Now, if you have any of those three going on in your life, would you stand? Yes, let's just close our eyes. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, that you are so loving and merciful that even now you will meet us in our weakness. Yes. And Lord, I pray, I just feel, I keep hearing the word foolish love. The foolish love of the bride in Song of Solomon that said, have you seen my beloved? She didn't care to what extent she would have to go, but this love that is so self-forgetful. 
I pray that you would restore to your bride a love that is so self-forgetful, a love that does not consider itself worth anything, but a love that gives up its own life for those around them. God, I pray this. He prayed in John 17, right before he went to the cross. He said, I pray that you would be one as the Father and I are one. That is how the world will know and believe that I was sent. And so I pray that over this church here, may the people be one in love, God. May they love one another as you have loved them. I pray for any little offenses or any little things that are in our hearts, God. Forgive us for when we have not seen. Forgive us when we have not seen people the way you see them. Forgive us when we have seen our brothers differently than you have seen them. Forgive us, O Lord, and restore to us the love that saved us. The foolish love that saved us from the pits of hell. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And I really believe the Lord is going to tenderize your heart right now. The Lord is here to tenderize hearts. The Lord is here to tenderize hearts. When he walks into the room, humility has to fall upon you. Yes, Lord, pour the deep, deep love out of the Father who, who, who sent his son not to come in a palace, but on a donkey. Can you imagine the love that, 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 that said, he said in, in Matthew 25, it says that the, whatever you do unto the least of these, you have done unto the king. I'm sorry, forgive me, Lord, for when I have considered myself something too special or something great, and I've forgotten the least of these where you were. Thank you, Jesus, for tenderizing our hearts and for restoring this foolish love. In your name I pray. Amen. Guys, I want you just to pray. Thank you so much, Nathan. I want you to pray in a foolish way right now. I want you to forget where you are and just for the next few minutes, I want you to pray in a foolish way. Go for it. There's no restrictions here. There's no restraint. Some of you older men who've kind of lost that zeal and that beauty of passion, you just got to let it flow. Some of you quieter ones, you think you're an introvert. You're not an introvert. You're a lover. Foolish lover. Come on, let it go, let it go.
Some of you older men who need to come up here right now, the older ones who usually don't put your hands up, you usually don't say, you need to come on the mic and say, I love Jesus with all my heart. Come on, older men, you know who I'm talking to. If your heart's gone dry, just say, I love Jesus. Come up, I'm here. Come up here. I love Jesus. Come on. Come on. Come on. There's more of you. There's more of you. You trust too much in what everybody thinks, your respectability. Get up on this stage. Come on. There's older men, older men and older women. I dare you. I dare you to pour an extravagant offering. Come on, some of you are standing there like, get down here. Stop being so professional. There he is. I love Jesus! Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There's more. There's more. While we wait for them, come on, we're not waiting to give you, we're not waiting for someone to tell you. We will tell you ourselves, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Praise your holy name. Hallelujah. Anybody else? Come on, don't shake that respectability off. Oh, but my voice sounds like this. My this, this, and that. No, don't be Simon. Be Martha. Be Mary. I love Jesus! Jesus, I love you. Praise the Lord. Come on, come on, come on. Is there any more wild lovers? Is there any more wild lovers? Come on, hallelujah. The world must see a burning zeal in our eyes. They must see a love in our eyes. Thank you, Jesus. sweetheart. Jesus, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, love you, love you, Jesus. You're my everything and I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Come on. There's some more men. I'm saying this to men because you are leading your house. Come on, boys. Come on, children of God. <laughs> Here they come. Hallelujah. Any more? Come on, men. Come on, men. Come on, more. Come on. Come on. What other men love Jesus? Come on, men. Hallelujah. Real men love Jesus. <laughs> come on, men. There's more. Hallelujah. my King. 
praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you, my King. Yes. Yes. Just pass it down fast. You can lead it. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Woo! I love you, Jesus. Yes! I love you, Lord. Yes. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I obey you, Jesus. I follow you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus, my Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I love you. I love you, Jesus. I, I love you, Jesus, and I love you, Holy Spirit. Jesus, you're the best. Father, thank you so much. I love you, Jesus. Jesus, I love you so much, and I'm so grateful for what you're doing in my husband. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. My Yeshua HaMashiach. I want to love you like when I was a little girl with no fear overflowing and pouring your love out to others. In Jesus' name, we are your sheep and you are our shepherd. Lord, help us to remember that. I love you, Jesus, for without you, I'm nothing. But with you, I have everything. Hallelujah. Yes. Lord Jesus, we love you. You have our hearts. Lord, we want to live every day keenly aware of your love for us. And that our hearts would overflow with adoration and pure love for you, for your bride, and for the lost. We ask that, Lord, you would lead us, lead us to be uh, the image, the shining image of our Father. The Holy Spirit, you would lead us to be able to say what Jesus said. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. That we would, we would, we would mirror him perfectly to our families, to our community, and to this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Here's what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. Here's what I would like to do. If you're on the prayer team, uh, go ahead and come forward. Make ourselves available. Uh, we, if you, if you want to give your life to Jesus, I want you to come forward. If you want uh, prayer for anything, whatever it is you have going on, healing, anything like that, we would love to pray uh, for you. We see people healed every single week. And so if you got something, man, I just, I just really challenge you to press in. And Jesus already paid for it. He wants you to receive what he paid for. So I want you to, to, to go ahead and come forward for prayer. Uh, other than that, hope to see you back at 6 o'clock tonight with Eric Gilmore. Uh, if you want to be baptized, come up to this guy, Jared, with the yellow. And uh, we have the baptismal ready. We'd love to, to, to baptize you. Other than that, God bless you guys.